episode 195 of The Cool Room. I'm your host, David Griffiths. I'm excited about the episode we've got lined up today. It's something very special, a little bit different from what we do uh, regularly. Uh, Today, we're going to be sitting down with Kurt and Kumar from Deeds Brewing to sip our way through the journey. Uh, And look, really looking forward to that. This was an episode from a couple of weeks ago, a live show we did out at the Flemken Bowls Club, A huge thank you to the Bowls Club, obviously a huge thank you to Kurt and Kumar who made time on uh, what is a very special day for them, that was the uh, the brewery's birthday, to come out. And a huge thank you to everyone who came along to the Bowls Club, the good news or the bad news, depending on your point of view, if you were out there with us that day, uh, is that some of the audio is not fantastic, so not every audience question that got asked is going to appear in the podcast version. You might be really happy to hear that. You might be disappointed to hear that if you're out there. Either way, a huge thank you to everyone who came along. Um, and look, if you really want to get the most out of this podcast, please jump onto our online store. Uh, just go to Google and put in Cool Room Podcast Shopify and grab yourself one of these tasting packs of the Journey beers. Uh, most people in Australia, I think, will be really familiar with the beers. Uh, they are genuinely legendary, as you will hear as we chat through them. Uh, kicking off with the Once More Into the Fray, which is a 14% bourbon barrel-aged imperial stout. But this pack contains four beers, uh, which are basically all around that same kind of premise, the same ABV, the same over-the-top flavours, uh, and it's excellent value. So, look, a great gift as well if you're looking to send some beers to someone uh, overseas or to another mate as we get closer and closer to Christmas. These are beers that you can age in your cellar just as much as you can taste them now. Awesome things to taste. Hopefully the podcast will encourage you to uh, to sip on those at home and please support us by grabbing those beers. You can also support us by grabbing some other beers. Um, look, a few months ago we obviously did that fantastic collaboration with Carwin Sellers, The Black Box 12. Again, over-the-top big dark beers uh, and uh, from Australia's leading breweries. Uh, we've got a few of those boxes left and we've also got a few other odds and ends uh, from some boxes that got broken up uh, in terms of sort of cans here and cans there. So if there were particular beers out of that pack that you loved, now's the time to jump onto that Shopify site. Uh, check out the treasures and treats from the black box and you can get in and find those beers individually or collectively. Um, they're great things. It would be a huge help to the podcast and me, obviously enough, if we can move them into the cupboards and fridges of deserving drinkers rather than having them sitting out here in the way of the gnomes in the cool room as they try to work out the logistics Look, while we're doing our spruiking, let's talk about a couple of things that we've got coming up. Uh, September, as ever, is going to be a fantastically busy month. We've got two online sessions. We're going to have Seeker on and we're going to have a Sailor's Grave on. Literally, the Sailor's Grave stock has just been delivered to me. Not much of that left already. Thanks to our subscribers. A huge shout-out to our subscribers who each month uh, get their packs delivered. It makes the logistics the logistics gnomes so much easier. Uh, but if you're keen to be part of our live podcasts online via Zoom on a Thursday night with Seeker and Sailor's Grave in September... Now is the time to be jumping onto the podcast, uh, jumping onto the Shopify, I should say, and grabbing those beers. 
Our live show uh, in September is going to be out with Burnley Brewing. This is going to be a really special one. It's our 200th episode, five years of podcasting. Um, there'll be many thank yous to say on the night about that, so I won't bog down on those now, but it's also the night before Oktoberfest officially kicks off out at Burnley. We know the Burnley Oktoberfest beers are amazing. We've had those guys on the show uh, during COVID. We've hand-delivered packs uh, in the last couple of years. Now we're finally getting to go out and record in the flesh out at Burnley. Friday, the 15th of September, uh, come and join us. No tickets. Uh, just come and buy whatever beers you want to taste and um, bring along a couple of friends, introduce them to the podcast, introduce them to some truly awesome craft beers, and uh, we're going to have an awesome night there together, just like we had an awesome night uh, and an awesome afternoon, which led into an awesome night at the Flemkin Bowls Club with Kurt and Kumar from Deeds. No further ado, let's get underway with the episode. <laughs> Well, hello and welcome to episode 194 of The Cool Room, a very special edition today, not just because of the fact that we are having a live show here at the Flemington and Kensington Bowling Club. I can already hear the kiddies out there on the bowls green having an awesome afternoon. I can see the President's jugular already just twitching a little bit because there's nothing like numerous kids out on a bowls green to make a bowls club president feel a little nervous. Not just for all of those reasons is it exciting. It's exciting because we have four of the very best beers in the land here from Deeds, the Deeds Journey series, and not just that, but we are joined today by Kurt and Kumar from Deeds to talk about them, this amazing series of beers. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Hey, how's it going? Excellently well. Um, look, before we even put our noses into the glass that's been in front of us, let's just do a really quick introduction. Uh, Kumar, you've been on this show now many a time, but let's hear your official title and your role at the brewery. Uh, yeah, so I'm a, uh, one of the incredible sales team that we have at Deeds. So it's myself, Beck, who looks after the north, and Paul, who looks after the inner east. So I basically look after from Mornington and Phillip Island, the city, uh, all the way out to like Warrnambool out west. So I've got like a pretty decent patch of area. So if anyone's listening to this and wants some Deeds beers, just uh, send us a message. I'll look after you. Excellent. And Kurt, how long have you been at the brewery? Uh, I've been at the brewery itself for about close to two years now. Yeah. I joined in October of 2021. So you've been, uh, you've been there for two years and you are now head brewer. How long have you had that august title? Uh, I've been head brewer essentially since uh, late March of this year. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we're so lucky to have two very experienced palates with us here today. Uh, I thought that I would read the little blurbs that is on the back of the box and on the back of the cans for each of the cans as we go along today, uh, which lets me do my best Shakespearean voice as things get more and more developed. The uh, description of the first beer we're having, the once more into the fray, very simple. Times were simpler back then in terms of how beers were labelled. Uh, so very simply... This imperial stout was aged in bourbon barrels for 12 months, resulting in thick chocolate notes backed by vanilla, coconut, whiskey and oak. Gentlemen, stick your noses in and tell us what kinds of things we should be, first of all, smelling in the glass, and then let's get on to tasting it after that. Well, it's on the back of the can there, so... No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, uh, 
what I've noticed from when I first tried this beer and the way it's smelling now, you get a lot more of that dark fruit, like stewed plum character, something that you sort of find on a Shiraz, as what we would originally find. It's still quite a bit of the bourbon and still a bit of that roast chocolate that you'd see. But significantly more like dark stewed fruit. Specific yeah. spices, when you say warm spice, uh, sort of what I'd kind of... more of like a nutmeggy, stuff that you throw in a banana bread. And we should say we've had these out of the fridge now for about half an hour, I think, so... Oh, it's a great temperature. Hopefully yeah. it's about the right temperature to be tasting something along these lines. So let's, let's start to talk through the beer. How long ago was it made? Kumar, feel free to... You're the ancient history expert when it comes to deeds. I am the ancient history expert, but I'm very much on the uh, outside of the brewery uh, expertise, so there's a very real chance that Kurt will have more knowledge on this. Well, I believe it was barreled uh, roughly around, I guess, when was this one released? This one would have been released right after, so it would have been, um, I guess it would have been released in May. Yeah, this one so. this, this would have been released in May, so it was in barrel for at least a year before that. So this May brewery, of which year? Oh, sorry, it would have been uh, 2021. Yep. And so it would have been in barrel for at least a year before that. Uh, from what I understand... And from what I can see on my barrel tracker here, I think the majority of the barrels were just a little over a year old. Uh, they're primarily Buffalo, yeah, from Maker's Mark and Buffalo Trace barrels from the U.S., all bourbon. Um, yeah, a total of 14 barrels went into it, all 200 liters. And, yeah, it looks like they were all taken out of barrel uh, in September. Excellent. So I've got to say, first of all, I can see uh, one of our bright students here who's actually got the T-shirt on. He's eager to ask his first question. But, um, Kurt, I want to ask about your barrel tracking app because I've never actually seen a brewery. So do you have every single yeah, barrel yeah. that the brewery owns on a little app there? Yes. Uh, it's not an app. It's just Google Sheets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a very, very dense spreadsheet of just every single barrel we have, its literage, its make, uh, you know the amount of liters that are in each barrel, what it might accidentally be blended with. Well, not accidentally. Usually it's purposeful. <laughs> um, sometimes you top things up with, like, a mixed culture or whatnot because, you know, at the end it all tastes like, you know, sour nonsense. But, um, yeah, uh, it, it just keeps track of every single barrel that we have on our racks, how old they are. We have uh, certain, like, uh, marks that we use to see whether or not we should even be trying a barrel, whether or not it needs more time, just different colors, things like that to show... And let us know, like, you know, three months down the line that, oh, yeah, this is a barrel we should probably take a look at because, you know, something might be going weird with it or it would be a great one to look at for a particular blend that we're trying to get together. Because we don't pull barrels apart, like, you know, down from the racks every single day to try them all. It's usually, hey, we've got nothing else to do. We could finally breathe. Let's, let's <laughs> see if we can get the next fray together kind of a thing. Having a chat to Drew earlier on today and was saying that my memories, these started to come out during the beginning of COVID. And that that explained a whole lot of people's inability to actually track time successfully <laughs> for a couple of years there. Yeah. Uh, but also, I think, you know, I'd be really interested, Kumar, in hearing from you about the reception that this beer got when it first came out into the market, because it was almost like the right beer for the right time in that regard. Uh, in, a, in a big way. Um, so I think um, our success can probably be, like our hypey success can probably be put down to... Um, to a few very key beers. Uh, one of them was Survivor Type, one of them was Fiscal Damage, one of them was the Peanut Butter Imperial Stout, mm. um, and one of them was absolutely once more into the fray. Um, so this was sort of 
uh, peak hype period where none of us had anything to do except by a limited release every week or so to you know give ourselves a new experience. We had pint money that we weren't able to spend, uh, and so we went to the bottle shop and. Uh, no one batted an eye at the price tag, which was sort of amongst the higher priced 440 mil cans that we've ever seen in Australia at the time. Um, but so what was it then? Was it about 20 bucks a can at that stage? Uh, or... No, it was like uh, closer to 30 bucks a can. 30 bucks a can. I, yeah, I must have been undervaluing. I, I go back and collect money from everyone I sold this beer <laughs> to, to, to. Regards, there'd be another 10 bucks coming on every bill that you've uh, had in the past. Yeah, look, thereabouts. Um, uh, but... I think once people started trying it, um, then everyone realised, oh, okay, that's why. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was something truly special, and I think it really helped us um, estab- helped establish us as a brewery that didn't just do big hazies, but a brewery that could do some pretty other incredible styles that took a bit of work. So. Look, it's probably, you know, we're going to tell a bit of the brewery story along the way. Most people in the room with us today will know the Deeds story. But it's a special day in the life of Deeds today because it's Deeds' 11th birthday. Yeah. Cast your mind back, Kumar, to 11 years ago. What were you doing long before uh, before you were at Deeds? Do you ever... Uh, I think in 2022... Oh, sorry, 2012, I was working... <laughs> it's, it's 2022 yeah. did contain yeah. about 11 years <laughs> yeah. within it. It's a... um, no, in 2012, I was teaching flying trapeze in, in Phuket. Um, so, yeah, a bit of a different time. I have no idea what the craft beer industry was doing in, in uh, Melbourne because I wasn't here. But, um, yeah, I remember a few years after that coming back and uh, going to, to my local, which at the time was the Steam Packet in Williamstown, um, and the, the bartender at the time insisted that uh, it's not that I didn't like dark beers, it's that I just hadn't tried the right one um, and made me uh, grab a pot of the Lamington Ale. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. I do really like this. Turns out I just hadn't tried the right dark beer. Um, and that, all those years ago, sort of started me on my journey. Um, and, uh, yeah, m- many years later I, I ended up working with them and now we've gone from Quiet Deeds to Deeds Brewing. Uh, we've got the, the brewery open. We've got the tap room open. We've got our barrel age stuff. We've got our mixed culture stuff. We've just released a whiskey and a gin. Um, yeah, it's pretty wild what has been achieved in 11 years from when we started out as a, uh, as a brand that was contract brewing, functionally. Absolutely. And, and Kurt, which of the noble circus arts uh, were you undertaking in 2012 before you arrived? Or if you weren't doing circus-related things, where were you in 2012? Uh, circus-related. I was in law school, so... <laughs> uh, yeah, I was getting pretty disillusioned with that, uh, just doing uh, like pre-law out in Montreal there. And, um, yeah, drinking Chamblay, Unibrews, really loved craft beer at that point. And, um, yeah, a year later, I sort of dropped out when I went home for a wedding and got a job at a uh, craft brewery just bottling. About six months later, just a high turnover, I uh, started working as, like, I guess the general manager there. <laughs> I was 21. I, I swear I was a patsy. It's a long, long story. But, uh, yeah, I quit there, and within a year, I was uh, brewing at a brewery in Vancouver called Off the Rail. And, uh, yeah, I worked there for about six years before I moved off to Australia. And, yeah, uh, quickly after that, I started working at Deeds. Were you a, were you a home brewer before you had those jobs? Or oh, was it no. literally going no, I showed up to my first day at a brewery being like, yeah, I'm going to show them I like beer. I'm wearing, like, a Budweiser T-shirt. And, like, you know, <laughs> did not even really, like, you know, clip into, like, yeah, no, there's, a, there's certainly a tier of what people like here. And <laughs> that's not it. 
and uh, Kumar again, maybe, the, the very origin story, as you say, originally sort of contract brewing and things like that, but way back in the original A Quiet, as a quiet Deeds days. Yeah, so I was actually um, listening to... So Pat and Dave are the two founders. Um, they're mates from, from uni. They're engineering students that, uh, that did fine with engineering, but it wasn't where their passions lay. Um, they both really liked beer. Um, they, as engineering students do, um, they live together. I like to imagine that they got very, uh, that they enjoyed a lot one night and woke up to plans with a brewery, thought, hey, we should do this. I think it probably ended up being a lot longer than just one night of drinking. But um, uh, in order to start a brewery, you need a lot of money and you need a lot of industry knowledge. And at the time, they had neither. Um, so they took a punt. Um, they got credit cards. They... Uh, brought a beer over from Bolivia, I think it was, called Kuzkenya, which didn't do very well, uh, but it taught them a lot. They like, were... it, like it really didn't do very well, did it? The fact that the Bolivian beer uh, scene is still to break into the Melbourne market might just indicate <laughs> how far ahead of their time they were. Uh, yeah, pretty, pretty far ahead. Um, but, uh, look, it, it taught them a lot. Um, they literally paid for it on their credit cards. They were going around selling it out the back of their cars. Um, they really, really passionate and serious about it. They brought in a few others, Kilmez, which is still around, which is sort of Argentina's Budweiser, I guess. Um, you know, it's, it's their big one. Do you have the T-shirt, Kurt? The Kilmez T-shirt? I can find <laughs> one. I have so many, like, can openers, but no T-shirts. Uh, uh, was it the dark lager that they brought over? I think it the... was. Well, I, I believe... I'm not 100%, but I believe it was the dark lager. And, uh, yeah, at that time it would have been... Oh, I should know this. I don't know when Red Island started, honestly. But that was, uh, at the time, Melbourne was absolutely not ready for a Bolivian dark lager. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> oh, there you go. Have you, been t- have you been telling that story wrong for the uh, last 11 years? Look, honestly, I don't often mention Kuskenya, so <laughs> that's probably why, because I can get this stuff wrong. It's rare that I have someone who'll call me out on it, though. <laughs> so... <laughs> If, uh, yeah, yeah if, it's yes, a wild. If, so if you wild. want to be called out on your lack of knowledge of the Peruvian yeah. export beer awesome. market, well, uh, you've look, come to the right the room. Side, I'll never make that mistake again. <laughs> um, so anyway, the point is that uh, they brought in a beer that didn't... It wasn't the right beer for the market, but it did enable them to figure out what was the right beer. Brought in Kilmez, that did pretty well. They went out, they were looking for something different. They brought in a cider from Sweden that at the time no one had ever heard of called Recorderlig. Um, oh, all yeah, the, right. All the bottle shops and bars were like, what are you doing? Like, all their mates were like, what are you doing? It's too sweet. It's in a weird format. It's very expensive. No one's ever heard of it. Um, and then, obviously, there was that... Uh, those, like, two or three years where literally everyone... Like, the kids were drinking it because it was sweet. By kids, you mean people over the age of yeah, 18? Yeah, of course. Of course, that's what I meant. Um, <laughs> the, like, their dads were drinking it because it was, like, a good thing to drink while you were mowing the lawn or whatever it was, but inexplicably, dads adored it. Um, it just absolutely exploded. They went from a very, very small team to a team of people across the country, uh, and then Coke approached them uh, and wanted to buy the rights to sell it. They were like, great. Uh, Coke paid them basically a brewery for it. Um, and so that's when they started looking for a site. They found Glen Iris in 2015, I believe it was. Uh, and then council was like, yeah, nah, 
can't have a brewery there. And then... So we've finally got to the local government portion of the podcast. <laughs> it's always my favourite bit. Uh, yeah, no, I can't have a brewery there. Can't have a, especially can't have a tap room there. We don't want people vomiting, um, fighting, pissing on the on the walls uh, of the on, like back streets of Glen Iris. So uh, yeah, there was a battle with council. Uh, tap room got approved. Our first brews were beer. Our first beers were brewed out of the tap out of our own brewery in Glen Iris. Uh, February 2019, um, which was very, very exciting. That's when we sort of moved from being Quiet Deeds to Deeds Brewing officially. We'd sort of been working up to it before then, but that was when the big change happened. Uh, And then uh, sometime during COVID, in that, like, nebulous period, uh, the tap room got approval and and finally opened as well. So we, uh, it's been a real journey, real journey, uh, but here we are. Excellent. Look, I think that's a good little spot to finish up where we are with our first beer. We can uh, come back and discuss more of the journey along the way. Uh, If you want to go back to those dark, dark days of local government in action in Glen Ira, certainly wouldn't happen in the city of Melbourne, uh, go back and check out the first ever time that deeds were on the podcast uh, where my good friend Damien Gibson, uh, original co-host of the show, and I ventured out to the brewery which at that stage had been knocked back again for being a tap room. So we actually have, on the cool, in the cool room, a series of podcasts now over the last four or five years tracking things so we are, we can go right back to the days where you'd been knocked back. Uh, we had a, I don't know whether it was a question in the room or whether one of the audience members was indicating just how much they love recording back in the day. It must, <laughs> must be that. I won't out which member of our loyal Cool Room family was indicating that. He doesn't even have a lawn to mow. That's the only clue that I will uh, give you. Uh, excellent. Let's press pause on the recording and come back in a few moments to build a fire. Well, welcome back if you're listening to the podcast. Here we are. We've got our second beer in front of us. We've got a bit more on the can than we did the previous time. Let's go through what it says on the can. Now that you are out in the fray, the true test of survival begins. As the cold creeps in, don't rest your eyes, don't close them, and absolutely do not fall asleep. You need to find something to warm you up. This imperial stout has been aged or has been aging in bourbon barrels for 12 months and might be exactly what you need. Generous additions of cacao, hazelnut have shaped a flavour in this dark, viscous liquid that is both deep and rich, with intense notes of everything delectable, including the sweet, sweet bourbon. Gentlemen, take us through what we should be smelling on the nose and then what we should be experiencing inside the glass. Mmm, radio silence. All right. Well, the nose itself, it's very, very toasty, but like very much of a, like a mild toast... Like, almost like toasted bread. But there's still a little bit of that cold brew coffee, probably from that as well. Still get the hazelnuts. There's some vanilla on there. And I will say, even though the ingredients list um, cocoa and hazelnut, there's vanilla in there. There's vanilla bean. It's added on there. Did you say there was actually coffee added to it? Because I certainly get the coffee coffee notes. Yeah, just coffee notes, probably from the barrel and the roast itself. Mm. That's a thick boy. Vis- viscous being the word? Yes. You can see it on the glass. It's not enough like seasoned when... viscous. Yeah. So a bit like when they talk about <laughs> Vis- the lengths of a viscous. glass of wine, we've sort of got a similar thing happening there yeah. in yeah. terms of the way it runs yeah, down the side legs. of the glass. It's legs. But it's very thick. Mm. 
We've, uh, we've stepped up the alcohol percentage a bit from 14.6 to 14.9. If, if anyone's palate can tell that difference, they are expert, expert well, connoisseurs. With the, uh, the amount of like chocolate and hazelnut in here, and the vanilla as well, it's so smooth, so thick. It, it does, like, it's not as heavy on the uh, bourbon or on the oak, but there is a little bit of that tannin that makes your tongue stick to your teeth after a little bit. That or it's going numb, I can't decide. <laughs> I certainly get those coconutty bits as well. And is, that, is that what you're saying adds to sort of the, yeah. the mouthfeel, for want of a better phrase? Uh, I'd say so too. There's actually uh, a, quite a bit of it. It's probably the lipids that would have been soaked out of the hazelnut when we added it into tank. Okay, so explain to the ex-philosophy teacher what a lipid is. Uh, a lipid is just like a fatty acid. So that's why the head retention shit right now, because it, what it does is it breaks down the proteins in there, and it's, uh, it's essentially just like a, it's an oil, like a fat. So it will add to the viscousness, viscosity of the actual liquid. I'm, I'm glad you uh, fixed your language <laughs> yeah, up there, know, right? not, because not just a philosophy teacher, English teacher as well, and viscousness, viscousness. was really going to play on me for a while. Yeah. Viscousity. Um, <laughs> Yeah, all in all, I was writing my tasting notes for these yesterday. I was very cut by the end of it, but this one stood out to me uh, because, like, I'm a very, um, I'm a very big fan of uh, pastry stouts and things adjacent to that. And this is certainly adjacent while still having an incredible complexity to it. It really does. Were you having them out of the cans yesterday or out of? Oh, I, uh, I poured them into a wine glass, like you know, some sort of prick. But yeah, um. <laughs> I went searching for one. I, I went literally to go and buy tasting. Uh, proper tasting glasses yesterday, and then various events overtook us, which is all just part of the fun of being uh, yeah. uh, not just in the uh, hospitality trade, but also working with bowls clubs and other fine organisations. Yeah. So we had, a, we had a fun afternoon yesterday, didn't we, Kumar? We did indeed, but the important thing is that everything worked out as it needed to. Is it fair to say that we were within about 29 minutes of this event not being able to go ahead? Uh, I'd say... This event would have gone ahead either way, um, but the the extra fun bits uh, would have would have not, unfortunately. So yeah, we, it worked out well. Worked yeah. out well. Everything worked out well. <laughs> no, 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 no. But maybe after one more of these delicious fourteen point five percent beers, we might get uh, a little bit more of the truth coming out. But uh, Kumar, I want to take you back. We were just touching, particularly during the break, uh, on some of our first encounters with each other, and I think you were alleging that. Well, which beer did you think it was that um, won me over to I, your I, cause? So I remember coming to you with... So this was back in the days, early, early days, when I actually got samples of our limited releases that I got to take to our customers. Um, and I remember when you were at the Royal Mail bringing you in a can of the Traveller and Fortune and Glory, our very first releases, and you were quite impressed with them. But it was uh, Hummingbird, which was our... Um, uh, I think our, maybe our first wasn't a pastry stout. What was the style that we called it? I think we called it a pastry ale or something. Maybe a pastry sour? Um, I can't even remember whether you actually had a proper style name yeah. for it or just described it as a cake. Yeah, like <laughs> cake ale or yeah. something. Sugar um, juice. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I remember that we did that one for you for, uh, I think it was for your birthday at... Royal Mail? Inspired by original J Jamaican dessert, our Hummingbird Double IPA. Ah! Oh. <laughs> Gee, I reckon we could have guessed about ten styles and never gotten to no, Double honestly, IPA. Honestly, that's oh, not what I would have clicked that our, our style assignment would have been. But we've had some... Uh, we've, honest, yeah, I think... 
at the end of the day, styles are, are really just marketing, you know? So, <laughs> so, sorry, can you say that out loud again just to make sure that we get it clearly on the podcast? Uh, that might be the, we've, we've been thinking about sort of setting up our own YouTube channel just with little clips of podcasts. Uh, and, Kumar, that might be the first one that we put up there. So just on behalf of your fine profession of beer reps, uh, say again. Uh, yeah, so anyway, um, <laughs> Hummingbird was really good, um, and Dave loved it, and it was a great birthday beer, but I felt like that was the one that you were like, well, this is like... Because I think at the time there was a couple of nice IPAs kicking around, um, but that was... It was almost like a, a Gabs beer, in a sense. Like, it was silly and over-the-top and something that, at the time, was really only reserved for Gabs. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was a September or, or, no, or September or October release. Um, and I think that was, it was one of those times when people started, like, looking and being like, oh, this is wild and cool. And also, in a sense, polarizing. There was quite a few people who had pretty strong opinions on it. Um, both positive and negative, um, but I feel like that's how you know that you've made something that's uh, that's really interesting. You know, you don't want something that everyone's like shrugs their shoulders about and like, yeah, it's fine. So, uh, but ideally, there's more people who love it than hate it. Well, I, my particular memory, I've got to say, of our first interaction was not so much the actual beers. I think there was, there was a couple of core range ones in there but your insistence of actually sitting down and drinking them with me. So it wasn't the usual rep thing of, here's four or five beers, let us know what you think about them. You oh. sat me down at the table, because I, I had a preconceived idea of what a quiet deed brewing was about. I didn't realise that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I also and didn't realise that um, trying the beers with, with people was not a thing. <laughs> and oh, I've been doing it for six years. <laughs> well, for, we've got a few people in hospo here. And so I, the, the honest answer of what happens with most of the uh, samples that we used to get given was that they go into a milk crate in the fridge and then they're used for staff kitchen knockoffs and things like that. So the number of times that the owner of a brewery <laughs> doesn't actually taste... It's the owner of a brewery. Owner the of owner of a pub is not the one to taste it. I think he's probably far higher than you think. And by making me sit down and drink with you, apart from your good company, which I've warmed to over the years, I was a bit, <laughs> sort of, it was a bit of a struggle at first. You, you actually made me drink the core range and genuinely see the difference in the brewing that had occurred in the life of the, of the brewery. Well, well... That is great. That is great to hear. I feel like if there's any sales rep list, sales reps listening to that, it's a great reminder. Um, and for me, it's a great it's a great reminder as well. So thanks, Dave. That's lovely. So I'm trying to remember whether it was the juice train Almost or was was the juice train the first of that sort of yeah series it, that was coming through. Well, juice train. Um, so I started in September, October of 2017, and juice train came out in December 17. We were doing deliveries literally on the last day of the, the year before Christmas and, and then that break afterwards. Um, so I imagine I, Juice Train was a big one as far as a, a change of trajectory for Quiet Deeds and Big Brewing. So, probably. so tell us the Juice Train story because apart from anything else, it's available here at the Flemken Bowls Club now. Yes, it is indeed. Um, so, uh, yeah, Juice Train was... Uh, previously, we'd had sort of three annual seasonals. So mm. we had our Lamington Ale in the autumn... We had uh, the vanilla porter at the time in the big 500 mil bottles. Um, that, yeah, I know that's that's a real throwback. And 500 mil um, cans, or am I making that up? No, no bottles, bottles. Um, like, 
Yeah, if you remember... Did we can it maybe during, during COVID? Did we have to go to emergency canning of things? So we did move to... We did move it to cans. It went... So... Back in the good old days of Quiet Deeds, it was in 500ml bottles, and then it moved to 330ml bottles, um, and then it moved to 440ml <laughs> cans. But um, each of those had a very, very different packaging vibe. Um, and a, uh, But yeah, sorry, we had Lamington Ale, uh, Vanilla Porter, and then we also had our White IPA, uh, which was like our summer seasonal. Um, it had some very, very passionate fans who... Like, still, every so often I get asked about it, especially in the city, bizarrely. Um, but uh, Juice Train in 2017 was, like, that year's summer seasonal. It was meant to be a one-off that we only did once. Uh, it, I think it came about as a result of us trialling Juice Train as a Nipah at Gab's that year, um, which I could be wrong, but, um, I, like, I wasn't working there then, but... Uh, it was a trial. People liked it. Um, you know, we'd, we'd seen Juicy and, and Jedi Juice sort of start, like just start to hit hit the um, the tracks back then. And so we released our own one. It was received very, very well. Um, fortunately, we did it that early that it gave us a lot of time to sort of grow with the market and make minor tweaks. Uh, we had one ill-fated batch. Um, part of the fun of contract brewing is that not everything always goes to plan. Um, These are our favourite stories in the core room, of course. So, so uh, feel free to name the facility and there. No, no, don't. Not, no, no, not, no, 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 none of that is needed. Um, but, uh, but the uh, the important thing is that it was the third batch where that happened, and a couple of them were pouring a bit brown, uh, which is not great for something that everyone was pouring into a glass and being so excited about how hazy it was. Because at the time, that was very novel and new. Um, but yeah, fortunately, it was early enough that it survived and. Uh, Eventually, after limited release and limited release and limited release, we eventually just made it part of the core range. Um, and it is now the longest standing part of our core range um, by two years? A year? Yeah. So what else has fallen by the wayside in that time from the original core range? Um, so our pale ale, which was like a really classic Australian pale, um, a, a kind of British IPA that's hidden away across Melbourne in a couple of kegs here and there. Uh, on tap, um, what else do we have? Session Ale, uh, which was a little orange, little bright orange can. Um, man, this, it's wild thinking back that far because I feel like they're, they're really distant memories now. It's been, you know. Yeah, to a, to a degree, but I actually still, um, I had a couple of customers who were running the Session Ale until we ended up finishing it up and we were like, oh, you know, we've got some pretty good alternatives, but it just never quite did exactly the same it works really well as a mid-strength pale but session ale was 4.2 percent and it was just kind of like like a middle spot between our pale and a mid-strength so um but yeah it's interesting just like thinking about how the breweries evolved over the years and and the beers that have have fallen by the wayside um and the beers that i guess have kind of made a return in one way or another we're going to finish off this session on this particular beer in a moment, but I really want to sort of get an idea about the story behind the marketing, the story of the journey. When Once More Into the Fray was made, was there a plan to have a series of beers that would tell the story? Why was it called Once More Into the Fray? What we, were you setting up for this box that we now have in front of us here at the Flemken Bowls Club and also available in the Cool Room Shopify? Yeah, uh, there is a story. Uh, I'm not going to tell you it. 
<laughs> Excellent. That's the kind it, of radio it, we like. Honestly, it, it, uh, it's really just, it's, uh, there's a story. It's for you to figure out. And there definitely was a plan going into it. It's the same with the uh, second series of Once More Into the Frame. There's a story. It's on the back now, so you don't have to figure it out. However, the original plan for this one and for the series going forward was for you to figure out what's happening through the beer label itself and why it's happening again. Excellent. I think that that's, uh, that's exactly the kind of answer we needed. That's the teaser for everyone. It's a bit like sort of the, back in the like late 80s, there were all these books that you could buy with hidden messages inside them and you had to sit there and pour over them night after night. Uh, we can do the same with the cans, uh, particularly if you buy them uh, from the Cool Room Podcast Shopify store. So we will use that little opportunity to have a plug <laughs> to press pause on the, to build a fire. Well, here we are. We're back with our third beer of the afternoon. That excites Corey a lot, apparently, and that's excited the rest of the crowd. It's awesome to be here at the Flemken Bowls Club on a Saturday afternoon, not playing bowls but drinking fantastic beers with both Kumar and Kurt from uh, Deeds Brewing. We've uh, had our traditional little break here in the cool room where all the best discussions happen. The, way, the reason I think that was an excellent discussion is because Kumar has finally agreed that, yes, there were 500ml cans of the vanilla porter, and that makes me feel better about the way that my brain can recall facts. Nine hundred and eighty mils, so close to five hundred. Uh, Basically the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's why you should buy beer from me because I'm not good on telling the difference between five hundred mils and a litre. Uh, here we are. We've got the desperate invocation in front of us, uh, as has been pointed out. It feels like the the labels get more and more intense, more and more verbose as we go along through this series. Perhaps inspired by previous beers. Perhaps the uh, the team were sitting around. So here we are with our desperate invocation. Your wakefulness outlasted the fire, and now the deep, cold night has come. And a blind stumble, he said, reading like he was in a blind stumble, uh, after a blind stumble and no shelter found, you drop to your knees, howling a desperate invocation, begging, bartering and bellowing to anyone or anything that can hear or listen. As the frost creeps towards your lungs, you see a shimmer. Has something answered your call? Wiping away the sleet, your eyes narrow. It looks like the bourbon barrel-aged imperial stout was blended. Was there a full stop in there somewhere on the way there? It's sure. hard to say. Yeah. It was the sleet in my eyes. It must have been made. <laughs> this bourbon barrel-aged stout was blended from 18 hand-picked barrels and conditioned on vanilla beans and toasted coconut. Look for oak, chocolate, vanilla, coconut, and, of course, that sweet, sweet bourbon. Kurt, take us through what we should be smelling. Taste, take us through what we should be tasting. All right. The primary thing on this nose is still quite a bit of that bourbon. It's very, very sweet, but the other huge note there is that toasted coconut. There's about 80 kilos of toasted coconut in here. This is actually the first beer that I had a hand in actually, like, you know, producing since I've worked at Deeds. And, uh, yeah, we actually had to get... Uh, a chef in because our chef refused to toast all that coconut for us. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a chef in for about two days, just straight up. All he did, toast coconut. So, he probably hates us. What, what does 80 kilos of toasted coconut look like? Does it come in pre-desiccated? Does it come in just yeah. in terms of coconuts? It was, de it was desiccated coconut and he was there with a wok and he just spent like a good 16 hours just toasting coconut. 
Yeah, not not in one shift, two shifts. He had to come in the next day. He said he could do it all in one day, which is fair enough. I'd probably want to die, but like, <laughs> it, yeah, it it, uh, it looks like a lot of uh, you know straw. It looks like something that shouldn't go into a beer, but um, <laughs> we did it, and it turned out quite nice. So yeah. again, well, you know, I'm sort of fascinated by the processes. I'm fascinated by when things get added. Can you talk us through sort of the stage by stage how a beer like this is made? And, for instance, when does the coconut go in in that process? But take us through from the beginning, the life of this beer. Uh, sure thing. Usually it just goes by, like, uh, you make a traditional... Well, you'll make a stout. You're planning to put it into a barrel. So you want to make it very, very thick. You want to have a high ABV. You want it to be super sweet by the end of it in case things go a little bit wacky. You never really know. Can, can I ask? I don't know. I'm going to get in the way here. But what does a high ABV for that basic stout look like at the beginning? Oh, so we... uh, we're aiming for roughly between 12 or 13%. Um, some of our other ones that uh, have come out around this year, we were doing an experiment where maybe if we go for 14 and uh, try and get to like you know that 15 mark by the time it comes into the barrel, because we'll be soaking some of the uh, former liquid that was in there, like the former spirit, into the liquid as well as evaporation occurs. So it'll end up jumping a little bit, which is why these are all different, but they're all typically made from the same original beer. The uh, yeah, so from there we'll ferment it out. We'll make sure that it's like you know totally done fermenting with the yeast that we provided it. And then we'll send it through a centrifuge into a separate tank that's blown down, oxygen-stable, to make sure that it won't oxidize. And then from there, we'll barrel it. We'll throw it up onto a rack for about a year, and then that's when barrel selection occurs. From there, we'll take all the beer and we'll move it into a tank, once again, that is uh, oxygen-purged. We're very, very good at this point at making sure that both during the barreling process and any other part of the process that there's no oxygen introduced. Which and is why, why, yeah, so why is that important? Because uh, it's, uh, Oh, yeah, if, as soon as you introduce oxygen to this and there's that much amount of time involved, uh, there's potential for weird things to happen, either re-fermentation or the big one being oxidization, where uh, it'll start to taste like cardboard. It'll uh, start to go either a little bit like tartar than it should be, some weird flavors will come about, but the main one is the uh, cardboard oxidized just not quite um, fresh. Like, if you've ever had an old beer, it's oxidization is the main thing you'll be able to pull off of it. It smells stale, like a bit skunked. But yeah, uh, from there, it'll go into a tank, and we'll already have our idea in place as to what we're going to be throwing into it, uh, adjuncts-wise. I mean, for the original fray, every time we say once more into a fray, that's straight up just our best barrels, because we really want to frame the fact that it's going to be um, bourbon barrel age, it'll be incredibly complex with nothing else into it. But the other ones with the adjuncts in it, it's, uh, we're trying to showcase adjuncts and uh, frame them with barrels that will work really, really well with those adjuncts. Uh, so for this one, we chose toasted coconut, 80 kilos. Uh, we threw 80 kilos of that toasted coconut in the stage once they were taken out of the barrels, and it would go through the centrifuge again. Uh, every time we send it through a centrifuge, we're just trying to remove any particulate. Obviously, the second time we're sending it through the centrifuge, it's because we're trying to make sure that there's no coconut going to be in your can floating around, getting stuck in your teeth. The first time is to remove yeast cells because there's something that is uh, particularly dangerous in these high-alcohol, dark beers, and it's called autolysis. It's when yeast cells drop off, like they essentially go into a dormant state and then start to die. But when they die, they'll split open, the ectoplasm spills into the beer, and when that gets into the beer... Ectoplasm. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it tastes like salt. It tastes like soy sauce. So if you ever have, like, a Vegemite bourbon barrel-aged stout, that's what's going on there. It's, yeah. 
Now, my boyfriend loves it. He says, I love your Vegemite beers when you give them to me. And it's like usually like some old, old thing. And it's just like, I hate you. But he, le- he, he legit, me- like, he means it. He likes that stuff. And he's like, oh, can you bring more of the Vegemite beers home? I'm like, no, I hate you talking. hate it when you talk about that. Just shut up. Stop telling people about them. Um, <laughs> and for, for our overseas yeah. listeners, our friends in Fiji and Finland, thank you for listening over there. Um, like Vegemite, you, who you, you may have heard of, that's sort of one of the traditional Australian breakfast spreads, is literally made from yeast cells. So it's not surprising that it has that kind of flavour. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's also like, you can be like described as soy sauce depending on how like the actual beer tastes but it's a very it, it's salty and it's striking and it's like it shouldn't be there <laughs> but yeah uh at that point it's uh treated like another beer again it's uh fused out sent to a bright we carbonate it up and can it how do you deal with the carbonation of it like what actually occurs to make that happen is it just simply adding the gas into the yeah it's uh typically forced carbonated so it's either pressure on the top of the tank until it gets to a certain point where we can send it through our force carbonator. So we're able at Deeds, we have a very nice piece of kit, which allows us to carbonate on the fly as we're packing. A lot of places sort of have to tune it and make sure by the time it's hitting into the can, it's uh, the right carbonation. Where us, we're able to just tune it while it's being packed. So uh, I'm there usually when we're starting a packing run with my glass of beer, and I'm just tasting it to make sure that the carbonation is locked into where we want it. And, and for that for reason alone, it's not because you want to taste the beer, it's because it's important that you're there. Oh, it's, and it's part of my job. When I was doing the tasting notes for this yesterday, there were amount of looks and people coming up to me. It's like, oh, you're already on the piss, eh? <laughs> it's like, nah, I, this is my job. I have, a, I have a thing I have to do tomorrow, man. Like, <laughs> You're just one in a long yeah, line and, and, of and people I, who says, I, I, David yeah. Griffiths made me drink this beer. I yeah. didn't want to do it. But. And it's been like two years since I had these, so I have to like refresh my memory for it. And it's like... I've been here 11 hours. I really just want to go home. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to not Trust be tasting me. these beers, honestly. <laughs> Sometimes it's a curse, but it's a fun job. <laughs> uh, we're going to open up for audience questions. I'm sure as we've had a few more glasses of beer in front of us, the audience is going to be ready. But, Kumar, can I speak, ask you, uh, by the time we get to the desperate invocation in this series, are these beers just selling themselves, or what's the role of a rep in going out and spreading the word about the next in the series? Absolutely critical. Like, probably the most important part of the whole process. <laughs> Very good. I feel like the International Union of, of Beer Reps is pleased by your answer. Uh, um, yeah, no, look, it's, it's one of those things where, um, in all honesty, uh, probably, I think... I'm trying to remember back. I think Desperate Invocation was kind of around the time, maybe, maybe, yeah. Desperate Invocation was sort of around the time where, in all honesty, our beers would genuinely sell themselves. Um, I would just call people up and say, hey, it's Kumar from Deeds. How you doing? And they're like, yeah, you got new beers? I'm like, sure do. And like, what are they? This and this. Great, I'll take them. No one was asking about price. No one wanted to... Which meant that when someone did, I was like, I don't know. (laughs) 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 Hang on a minute, let me check. Um, uh, Yeah, we were were absolutely riding the hype train and it was awesome for all of us involved. Um, These days, uh, it is absolutely like every single beer that gets sold is hand-sold by me. or by our other reps, but it is hand-sold by the rep teams. Um, it's, it's very rare these days to have people just reaching out of the blue, being like, hey, we've heard really good things about this, 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 we're really keen on getting it in, because the craft beer market has evolved quite a bit, and then obviously with, uh, with 
uh, inflationary pressures, everyone's thinking a lot more about how they spend their money. So um, I'd say that the the days of the beers just selling themselves are gone. But fortunately for Deeds, they have a very good sales team. So, <laughs> you know, we're still doing fine. I'm glad you've managed to pump up your own tyres, you've pumped up the sales team's tyres, you've pumped up the importance of beer reps in the industry from start to finish there. You've ticked all of the necessary boxes. <laughs> yeah. uh, again, sort of coming back, you know, I'm interested in hearing your version of the story about what we should be imagining when we're seeing the different names here, the evolution of the story in the journey. Have you got a different answer? Have you been given insights over and above what Kurt was able to share? Um, so... Ah, see, I like this radio silence. It makes me think there might be something coming. No, on. I'm just, I'm, I'm like racking my brains, and, and the, I just remember, um, I just remember a long, long time ago, a long, long time ago, when the first fray came out, um, the words "choose your own adventure," um, but also, I think Justin had just watched um, what was the movie with Liam Neeson. Oh, yeah, Liam Neeson plays a part. What's the... I, th I think there are a couple of movies What's he was movie? in, but I... He, he's into, pretty, into the yeah. Grey, the one with the wolves? It is. You know, it, is it? It's roughly around that whole idea. Yeah. The uh, right. whole story of it. Um, but there's your, there's your I mean, 3.27pm scoop on a Saturday, my friends. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how cagey is about, like, divulging the um, actual story. Yeah, there's, there's, so, well, there you go, there's another connection yeah. for you. Just I, go IMDb, just, Liam Neeson, you'll get there. I'll just watch <laughs> a movie. Yeah. What would be really fantastic is a whole series of beers based on the movies of ne Liam Neeson <laughs> without reference to a particular one. Yeah. Like, this is our Liam Neeson series. Uh, <laughs> oh, man, it's cytoplasm, not ectoplasm. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no, 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 it's ectoplasm. No, it's ectoplasm. <laughs> it's a, it, yeah, yeah, we've got ghosts, the ghosts of ghost. the yeast. <laughs> Trust me, we never cross the streams in the brewery. <laughs> is, that a, is that the precursor to an audience question? Or no, no, most definitely not. So I'm going to, re just in, in case that hasn't come across, I'm going to have a crack at reframing Shana's question, which is, how do you convince people who don't know how to sell $30 cans of beer to stock $30 cans of beer? Um, that is a, that's a really good question. Really, really good question. How um, do you keep convincing me to do it is really <laughs> what we're... <laughs> um, honestly... Uh, I think if we tried to do this now for the first time, it would be a different story. But part of it was very much that they had, like, these people who were trying craft beer, that had people coming in and asking them for new beers, even if they didn't necessarily care themselves so much about what was new and interesting in the craft beer world. They saw that, you know, they'd get my beers in um, and they would sell. And because they would sell by the single instead of by the six-pack or by the slab... The bottle shops were making better margin on it because, you know, like bottle shops selling a slab make a couple of dollars, whereas bottle, bottle shops selling a can make honestly more on that single can than they would selling a slab. Um, and so as a result, it's like the bottle shops are winning because they're making more money per slab that they sell. Um, they're getting our new stuff in and they're seeing people excitedly come in, buy it out within a week or so. These ones... A lot of people would just pick up and then, you know, as mentioned, no one was asking about price. So I had a few calls following the initial sales being like, uh, what? Um, so then it's, it's, about, um, it's about the fact that these beers, literally, as you're saying, you know, they can sit on your shelf. If you're willing to give them that space, 
There, they can absolutely sit on your shelf for the next two years. Each time you sell one of those cans, it's going to justify their existence in your shop, and it's you know you're going to you're going to pay those cans off by the time that you sent sold however many of them you have. Um, but then also it means that when you've got craft beer people coming in who are really excited about craft beer and they're coming in for the first time, they come in and see these beers that, you know, maybe they haven't been able to buy for some time and are very excited to get it, you know? And so it's part of the... Um, it's almost like a marketing for you as a craft beer bottle shop. To it's, it's really important to have things so when people come in who are after craft beer, it's their first time visiting, whether it, they've just moved to the area, they're in the area for whatever reason... Um, they're going to see these beers on the shelf and instantly categorise your bottle shop as, oh, okay, this is a bottle shop that has pretty sweet stuff that, you know, either now that I'm living here or next time I'm in the area, I'm absolutely popping in here. Um, in saying that, I still had people who basically... St I, I had one or two people who pretty much just stopped ordering uh, limited releases from me after they got, you know, a beer that was too expensive... Um, because they're like, yeah, look, you know, we've sold a couple now. I'm not going to try and return, you know, uh, most of a case, but this is too expensive for me to sell. So, you know, it's it's a balancing act of trying to manage expectations, trying to trying to communicate why these things are valuable to have in the shop, and why, as craft beer nerds, it's really exciting when you go into a shop that is maybe like, you know, had an overambitious orderer. Um, who, you know, doesn't yeah, that's, have... That's the T-shirt I need someone to make for me at some stage. <laughs> Overambitious orderer who doesn't ha necessarily have the clientele to support that. But then it means that, you, you know, we get to go in a year later and find some really fucking spectacular stuff that in all likelihood is not priced what it should be given how rare that would be. And, you know, if they decided that they wanted to sell it on to, like say, the, a Carwin Sellers or, or a Mr. West or someone like that, you know, you'd probably find it for a lot more money because it's a lot more valuable and rare. But for these guys, it's like, oh, it's just a beer that we got. It costs this much money and, you know, it's kind of hard for us to sell. It's just sitting on the shelf now. So uh, the, the analogy that often gets used for, for people outside of the beer world is the importance of having a couple of flashy cars on the showroom floor. So if you're Ford or you're Holden, you don't just want the little two-person Barina or whatever it is. You want a couple of the big sort of mega, you know, supercars. Mm, love that. It sort of it means people coming out, oh, look, did you know that Ford make things like that? Then they come in and buy their little mm. whatever sort of car that they yeah, can actually get, afford to buy. You know, they'll get the can of these... once more into the fray and then five other cans of other bits and pieces to get your mix six and yeah. your 10% discount. Or, or even even just you, you get the rub, as we would say in the wrestling industry, of the uh, of the of, of saying, yeah, as in this means that you know you you get the uh, the acclaim for being the kind of bottle shop that stocks beers like this. Yeah. Even if you're not selling them all the time, it means people are going in because they know, oh, this is that kind of bottle shop. Mm. I'm going to rephrase the question just to make sure if it hasn't come across for the audience listening in the podcast version. The traditional cool room clap there. The pigtailing on the back of the question of the pig. No. The question that we were having from Muggs, and it's a ripper question, is... The kind of ways that these uh, beers are stored, in this case in cans, people have a really good understanding about how bottled alcohol works, mainly from the wine industry. Uh, but do we have an idea about how beers stored in cans like this will go for a 10, 15-year sort of length? 
So certainly from, uh, I can only speak to it from a sales perspective and then we'll get Kurt's perspective on it. I presume from the sales perspective is absolutely beautifully nothing to see here. Spectacular. Yeah, nothing's um, the problem. Nothing's the problem. Perfect, um, right? Well, the thing is that um, there was a period of time where this was the case with all of our beers, but uh, if you've got a can in front of you and you pick it up and you look at the bottom, it doesn't say best before, it says packaged on. So, it, uh, you know, I'm looking at once more into the fray. It says packaged on the 15th of July, 21. Doesn't have, and that's it, you know. It tells you the time. It sells, tells you it's batch number two. But that's the information that's on the bottom of the can. But I think a big part of the reason that we didn't put a best before on is because, A, we don't know for sure that it is going to be best before then. But, B, one, as soon as you put a best before on the bottom then once it passes that, you're going to find bottle shops. Honestly, you probably still found bottle shops who, after 12 months, still had a can of once more into the front of the shelf. <laughs> I'm not going to attempt to summarise this with a couple of claps. Um, but, yeah, so essentially um, it's, it's a conversation with, with uh, customers because also, you know, these sort of beers are much, much rarer in, the, uh, in, in you know, their, their day-to-day purchasing, um, the way that they need to think about them. So, you know, it's a discussion about, okay, so these beers, they actually get, you know, they develop interesting characters over time. Like wine, you're, even if you're not, like, fully across it yourself, your craft beer nerds will absolutely be across it and will be appreciating it. And honestly, you know, if you've got a couple of these cans hidden out the back for a little while, like, we're, calling, we're talking two, three years, and you've got a couple of craft customers that you have good relationships with... If you say in two to three years, hey, I've got, I've got two or three cans out the back of Once More Into the Fray 2020, what are your thoughts? Are you keen? Uh, then people are going to be super excited, right? Um, so I tried putting them in a trench coat and wandering around. <laughs> yeah, well, trench coats are just not made to hold 500 or even one litre cans of beer, it turns out. Um, so, yeah, look, from a, from a sales perspective, it's, it's very much just... Um, it's interesting that there are some bottle shops who are very connected to craft beer and, and are really passionate about it themselves. But then there are other people who, you know, it's their business and their job is to sell beer. And so they sell craft beer and they see, you know, more interesting craft beer selling. And so they pick those up. But they themselves don't re- aren't super passionate about it. So it's more based off hype and things like that. And they're the ones that we obviously have to work much more closely with to, to navigate those conversations because... If you come in, or, you know, if, if that guy's coming in and he's like, hey, look, this can's been sitting on the shelf for 12 months, what the heck? It's like, yeah, I, I know, mate, but it's a $30 can, and, you know, it's, it's something special. It's like a, a special treat. Now, I'm going to cut Mr Muggs off there, because I want to hear, hear Kurt's answer to whether you're thinking about those things in terms of the longevity of the liquid when you're canning it and, and how you make a beer designed to do that. Then I've got a question from Corey... Then a statement from Muggs, if he wishes to make a statement at that point in time. Then we're going to press pause on this beer, because we've still got at least one, if not two, to go. Sure thing. Uh, yeah, these are double centrifuge, like I said before. So they're centrifuge before they go in barrels. So that's, that's how you get rid of the ectoplasm. Yes, the ectoplasm. <laughs> you, you really don't want those, them beer ghosts in there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you really want to make sure that... Uh, you get rid of any sort of impurity that will like contribute to the beer aging itself when you're making an aged beer. And then it's centrifuged again. So double centrifuging a beer, although it's not good for head retention because it's quite a bit of head, like, you know, but lots of stuff we do aren't good for head retention. But um, 
Yeah, uh, I'd say it's a very much a case-by-case basis as to how these beers are going to age well. I'd say they probably have a good five years on them before it becomes a, like, can-by-can basis. Um, that's just from my own experience. Although, like, you know, the craft beer industry is, yeah, at least down here in Australia, and these processes, having centrifuges and breweries that are our size, making, you know, beers this size, it's like... Who knows? It, it could be for a long, long time. Like, these could have the same properties of, say, like a, a well-made stew kind of a thing. The kind of thing where it's just like, you know, over 16 hours, it becomes fucking incredible. Whereas, like, your two-hour stew is just exactly what we sold it the first time. But, like... Yeah, I, I reckon that's going to be the line that Kumar is going to be using in oh, selling of uh, these yeah. kinds of Well, there's a reason why I just make beer, not I'm in sales, you know? Like, uh, <laughs> also, like, yeah, I've been drinking three of these now. Wait till the last one. No, I, I can't yeah, wait. I cannot wait. My little gems one. of wisdom that'll come out then. Um, and you'll be writing an even longer blurb on the back of a can by the end of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I didn't write any of these. These are all Justin's. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where we don't know. But uh, it, so from what I've seen, two years in, Really good results. If anything, these cans have really developed a lot more complexity. They're getting a lot better. And, um, yeah, I, I really can't wait to try them a couple of years from now, provided I'm, uh, you know, allowed to buy them at the same price. <laughs> exactly right. Well, here we are. We're back in the cool room. We're ready for our fourth beer. Unfortunately, if you're listening to the podcast version, you've apparently missed out on me sounding the most school teachery I ever have. Uh, but that does lead to what's going to shock Kumar in a few minutes' time when I get him to do what he wasn't listening when I asked him politely before to do. We're going to be really interested in hearing that. Uh, we're here at the Flemken Bowls Club. We're with Kumar. We're with Kurt from Deans. Uh, we've had some magnificent beers. We're about to have the infernal agreement and then with a bit of luck we'll have enough time left to be tasting the A Quiet Deed. I would love to encourage you to come down to the Flemken Bowls Club and taste that on tap. I reckon it's not going to last the afternoon uh, the way that things are going. People here are sharing on their social media the fact that they're drinking that beer at a ridiculous Bowls Club price. Yeah, 1963 prices even for beers which are <laughs> brand new today. Kumar what I was asking you to do before mm. was to read the can for the Infernal Agreement because oh. I don't trust myself to try and get through oh, the yeah. verbosity, uh, oh, let alone the viscosity <laughs> of what's on the back of the can there. <clears throat> before you, a gruesome vision appears out of nowhere. A shadowy figure towers over you, looking down with contempt. The only thing that heard your pleas has come to make a deal. You reluctantly accept the unspoken terms. Suddenly the icy wind fades and warmth emanates from deep in your chest, spiralling out to your extremities. The beast has vanished and in its place you see a distant light through the storm. You take a step. This bourbon barrel aged imperial stout represents the fourth and final release of the 2122 Frey series. It was blended from 18 hand-picked barrels and conditioned on vanilla beans and fresh habanero chili peppers. Sweet, sweet bourbon abounds with notes of chocolate, vanilla, coconut oak and a mildly spicy finish in brackets at the time. Uh, and that is Infernal Agreement. Well, that was a beautifully read. I love the change in intonation along the way there. Uh, really exciting, fun uh, description there. 
Kurt, can you once again please take us through what we should be experiencing on the nose and what we should be tasting? Sure thing. All right. <laughs> Heavy bourbon, for sure. Lots of chocolate. Definitely cocoa. Now, when you take a sip, things are going to change a little bit. Still going to be that chocolate, a little bit of coffee at the beginning. However, towards the back of the palate, after that very, very thick body, things are going to get a little bit spicy. In between that, it's still a little bit of that dark fruit. The roast, the coffee, and I suggest you get to it quickly. Take a couple sips before it starts to really get to you. But that's when the chili starts to build. When this beer was originally packed, the uh, chili was very slight in the background. Like, it was, uh, you know... Super mild. Very mild. Um, I've had a lot of... Like, I had a lot of experience with chili in my past, making... That sounds like a T-shirt for you, Kurt. That's your Christmas gift package. Making beers with chili, rather. Um, And uh, you need to go very light if you're planning for the future. Uh, If there's any sort of particulate left in a beer, uh, alcohol and time are going to draw the capsicum out of the, like, whatever organic matters left over. And there's always going to be a little bit of that, no matter how hard you fuge it, how hard you filter it. So over time, you need to plan for that. And so that's why I think the original was so light in the amount of spice in it, just so we were planning for years down the line where it will still be palatable, still be a drinkable substance, and not just some sort of black hot sauce that we're trying to pawn off on you. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, it's still there, and it's going to build. When you get further and further down this glass, it's going to get hotter and hotter and hotter. It's still going to be pleasant. It's still going to be balanced enough. It's one of those weird, like, little things where it's just like, you're going to try and take a sip of this beer just to relieve yourself from the spice that it, like, you know, put upon you to begin with. But... Do you, need a beer, do you need a beer chaser for this beer? Is that more or less what you're saying? Uh, maybe a milk stout. Well, <laughs> some of these people here have a great idea with what they're doing right now. They've got a pretty light beer next to this one. But, uh, you know, it actually drinks fine by itself, I'd yeah. still say. Like, I think it's beautiful. I love this yeah. kind of beer. It's like, magnificent. It's really interesting. It's different, especially when you've gone through all of the, uh, like, this part of the journey, and then you get to the end. It's uh, certainly, it definitely should be the end. Don't drink it backwards. If you drink it backwards, it's, Yeah. And that was one of the questions I was going to ask, but Muggs is going to literally throw his arm off his body if I don't throw to him for his question right now. The, I love the... the <laughs> this is, I've got to say that this is like one of those moments on Virginia Trail where I go, I don't know whether to say I'll take that as a comment or what? I'll take that as a huh? question. Uh, Kurt, how would you like to respond to Muggs's uh, yeah, stream of consciousness? Oh, it's the end of this journey. There's another one that happens. I think that's a that's a fair, that's a very fair response. I think that's a. Um, you were involved. You were saying in the desperate invocation that was your sort of first of this series. I yes, think you that, said. that was so, the first one that uh, I personally was involved with the uh, racking out of the barrels and adding of the adjuncts and whatnot. Luckily, I didn't have to take any of the adjuncts out of tank. A strategically planned vacation on my part. <laughs> it's uh, horrible trying to get. That amount of either nuts or coconut out of a you know one and a half inch space. So <laughs> the, that yeah. is that. Can I just say that's actually the t-shirt. You, it's hard yeah, to get it's that like, amount of nuts I out of a one inch space. I work with coconut, but I don't take it out. Yeah. The, 
Um, were you involved in the infernal agreement? Tell us about your role in this beer. Well, uh, Justin and I were chatting because we were uh, we made another beer with chili around that point, and we were both talking about how we wanted to make a beer with chili. And you know, a couple months down the line, it turns out we were going to throw some into one of the Frey series. And uh, yeah, um, I know my advice with what my experience was was go light on it, especially if you're trying to make a beer that's going to have to last a while. Because uh, I've had a few that are just absolute hot sauce after a while. Uh, but besides that, it, I didn't have too much, uh, you know, input in choosing the barrels or whatnot. That was still a uh, Justin and Ned job. But yeah, this was uh, released around Gabs of last year. I think mm. it was like mm. four Gabs of last year, so it would have been uh, May of 22. And when you sort of put them all beside each other, is it the Build a Fire, which your personal sort of standout of these? Or? Yeah, uh, to build a fire was one of the beers that actually made me want to apply at Deeds. It had released uh, around the same time that I got like insider news that they were looking for someone, and that made me throw my resume that way. That makes total sense. Kumar, for you, do you have a favourite? But also I want to ask about the, the untapped ratings. We sometimes refer to those. We sometimes decry them. But tell us where all of these beers fit on the Australian untapped ratings for beers of all time. Uh, yeah, so all four of these are in the top 50 of untapped for Australia for forever, um, which is pretty wild. Uh, Once More Into the Fray 21 is number three ever in Australia, which is pretty cool. Um, Desperate Invocation is number four ever in Australia, um, which is also pretty cool. Um, Infernal Agreements in there, Desperate Invocation is also in there um, in the top 50. So, yeah, um, very, very cool to see see that on untapped. and is that because you go on every Friday night, you're paid to go on there and yeah. check? Or, uh, or did you know that, did you actually go on there and go a bit today, oh, wow, I didn't quite realise that's you where You would that... not believe the amount of email addresses that I have. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, no, it just, uh, we, we hadn't a... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uma M, uh, Uma K, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 no, it's a, it's a, um, well, I, in fact, we have no demos in the building today, I think it's no, fair to say, it's the first time, well, this is, um, it, I actually learned about the, the fact that you could check, like, the historical top beers of a country, uh, from demo, um, so, uh, yeah, no, this, that's how I discovered it. And just like once in a blue moon, I'll check. And we had an event at um, Tap House earlier this week uh, where I was just having a squeeze because I remember the 2020 Once More Into the Fray was rated really highly on there. There was a period where it was like number eight, which is so crazy. And then I looked, I was like, what the hell? <laughs> number four and five. That's Sorry, number three and four. That's incredible. Um, so, yeah. That's uh, the kind of voice I normally use when I get excited. It's fantastic that someone else has one yeah, of those. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm still in shock. So, yeah, it's, um, it's pretty rad. Uh, it's, it's very cool. Um, I wish I had that before I had to try and sell the beer. Um, are there any audience questions out there? The, uh, start to get your head around that, my friends. I'm going to ask one final sort of nerdy question, and either of you guys can answer this. This has got both cinnamon and habanero in it. Yes. Um, why both? Because I would have thought that in one sense you could probably get away with one of those flavours rather than needing 
I Both think, gonna be like this. I think the idea with the cinnamon was to get the initial flavor of some sort of spice through in the beginning. The cinnamon is still present. You can still get it on the nose quite a, like a little bit, but uh, definitely on the uh, finish and the taste now, you'll get more of that habanero that we added in. Um, so it may have been a idea for us to just make sure that there was spice present, like some amount of spice, but later on down the line, when the chili picked up due to the aging process and what happens with adding chili to a beer, that would be the primary actual spice that you'd be tasting. That makes total sense. Are there any audience questions out there? Muggs has one. Hopefully the microphones aren't picking up the sound of my cyborg digestive system at work uh, in the background here. There's certainly some sort of strange noise uh, that is not related to my, uh, to my body in the background there, just in case you're listening in. And my crack, in case that didn't come across in the podcast, is like almost coming full circle. When you had your little app, which was actually Google Sheets out at the beginning, and yeah. you were telling us about where the barrels had come from, yeah. Uh, how important is it to source those barrels from particular distilleries? And how important is that in the marketing of the beers later on? And do you keep getting the same ones? Now, it's really weird in the way that it reacts when it's in the barrel. Um, Justin's theory, and it's becoming my theory as well, is that the worse the bourbon is, the better the beer is once it comes out of the barrel. So, like, I've heard that a couple of times. Yeah, now, and so it, it's like, and, others, yeah. and you know what? That's sort of becoming true. Uh, but we've been, we're still experimenting with that. Like, uh, it's mostly Buffalo Trace, Heaven Hill, and uh, I just asked for quite a few Jack Daniels barrels. So we're um, we're starting to like diversify our barrel amount just to figure out, like, or at least where we source them from. Just trying to figure out. What exactly is the best way forward? Uh, but it's always good to have variety because uh, constructing a blend is never necessarily everything that tastes like this needs to go into a beer. It's about striking a balance because if you throw everything that tastes like one thing, it's going to taste like one thing. You need that large amount of complexity, and you do get that through several different like uh, spirits or spirit-based barrels. Uh, I'm sort of fascinated, being a North Bendigo boy, I love my Jack Daniels. Is Jack Daniels a sign of the fact that uh, you're now going for a worse bourbon in the hope of a better beer, or is that actually no, indicative? It's, it's because we've only ever used two Jack Daniels barrels, and uh, those ones have resulted in some very, very nice barrels. So I still, just, I'm still, those words of the I worse know, the I bourbon, know, know. the better the beer. That's bring why we're, it's still in development. We're still trying to figure it out. We're still trying to be like, is it... I'm trying to be diplomatic. Adam. You are trying to be yeah, diplomatic, yeah, no. and I'm trying to lead you into a road. I'm a of... Canadian club guy. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting because the question we were just having there was, you know, how how dry are the barrels? Or more to the point, most of the times we've been speaking about this lately, particularly with our carbon black box sort of series, were uh, barrels which arrived very wet, like almost litres of spirits within them. Yeah, you're telling a bit. So we've talked about that end of the barrel a lot. Tell us what it looks like when a super dry one arrives and what was actually steaming them look like. Is that a two-minute process or a three-week yeah. process? Uh, well, it's a different process depending on what we're doing. Like, we have a still now, so when we're doing a, something with a still, you can afford for it not to be completely sterile. But for us, we do a 20-minute uh, steam gun into the actual barrel. Then we'll flip it over, wait till it's cold enough so we can actually, like, start piping the beer into it. Because if you do it while it's warm, it's going to foam up and it's a mess and you lose a lot of beer. And it, looks like, it just looks horrible. It's... Stout on the ground looks way different than lager on the ground. It looks like you just, you know, <laughs> murdered a squid across the brewery. <laughs> but, like, um, 
That's got to be the name of one of your beers. I feel like, you know... <laughs> yeah. Squid, squid murder would be the name. It would be, yeah. <laughs> but, like, um, yeah, so it's a 20-minute test with the steam gun. You wait for it to cool down. You drain out any residual liquid that's in there, and then you start piping the beer in. Uh, they look very much the same, but when they're drier, the, um, you're, you're going to have to have some fun with the bungs. Like you're gonna have to start. You're gonna have to have some fun with the bungs. Some, even. Fun with, some fungs with the bungs and some of the rungs. So yeah, you're, you're taking a hammer. You're taking a uh, like a. Uh, I forgot the name for it, but yeah, you're knocking the uh, rungs back into place and whatnot. Yeah, you need to make sh- you need to make sure the rungs and bungs are tight, so so that you can pipe it in there properly. Corey's loving it. Victor's loving it. We're having an awesome afternoon here, afternoon here at the Flimken Bowls Club. I'm going to press pause right now. Thank you to everyone who's been down here for this bit. If you want to join us for the discussion of the A Quiet Deed, now is the time to go out and see the team in the front bar. Grab your A Quiet Deed and we'll come back for a quick tasting and release these men into the world. Well, here we are. We're back at the Flemken Bowls Club. We're not in the cool room where I have spent much quality time over the years uh, cooling down elderly bowlers. This is one of the first cool rooms I ever spent time in. There is nothing like a hot Australian summer's afternoon when all of the oldies start falling over on a bowls green and you literally have to pick them up, usher them into the cool room and then remember to get them out again at the other end. Uh, there's another story there. Let's not go there. What we have in front of us is the final of the beers that we're tasting this afternoon with the team from Deeds. It's Deeds's 11th birthday. Deeds' birthdays always used to coincide with Royal Mail David birthdays. So we have a long tradition of birthdaying together. Um, gentlemen, tell us about the 11th birthday beer that's in front of us. Tell us why Bowls Club's shouldn't be given access to this beer because they sell it at the most ridiculous prices known to man. Well, it's a uh, 10.9% pastry stout that's uh, supposed to taste like our birthday cake, which this year is a uh, Black Forest cake, or Black Forest Gateau, as our incredibly pompous English sales head wanted to call it. It's like, just call it Black Forest cake. That's what we all call it. You guys say Black Forest Gateau, don't no, you? No, we no, don't no. say Gateau. A... We say Gateau. Yeah, anyway, whole... I'll edit that out. Don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> the whole idea for this beer was um, we were chatting about, like, well, uh, a quite idea every year is supposed to be what we've learned from that year. Last year we did a uh, double dry hopped, like, IPA, and that was us learning about what we did through snake oil and how our reception came back from snake oil and how everybody loved that beer. Explain what snake oil is for those playing at home because uh, most of us in the room might be familiar with it. But Yeah, uh, snake oil was a IPA we made. Oh, hey, doggy. Um, that was uh, us taking every single hypey sort of nonsensy thing that we could find throughout the industry and different like sort of processes that they did and we did them all at once. And we were like, this will never work. This is going to be so crazy and out there. And then what ended up happening was um, it worked. However, since we did everything at the same time, we have no idea what worked. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, yeah, it, it was uh, that sort of a thing. So we did the uh, things that we thought worked, and we created that beer last year. And, yeah, it was quite a good IPA. Uh, it certainly wasn't snake oil, so we sort of, like, 
we'll have to go back at it, I guess. Uh, this year, our uh, peanut butter bourbon barrel aged stout was sort of the stick out of like, oh wow, we accidentally did a really, really, really cool thing. Because that was something that we threw up on the racks and like, all right, cool, we'll deal with that in a year. We'll see how it goes. And, you know, we won a uh, award for it at the uh, ABAs. And it was like, you know, top of category for specialty beer. So we decided this year that we'll sort of go along the same vein. Obviously, we don't have any year-aged, like, bourbon barrel-aged stouts. But what we do have is some bourbon barrel-aged stouts that don't quite fit in the blends we're planning. So what we're going to do is we're going to take something that have, like, quite a bit of the bourbon character. We'll try and make that shine through, even if it's just bourbon tannin. We'll throw three of those barrels, like the ones that, you know, we know we can use, and we'll put them into the beer for our birthday beer this year. And also, since it's a birthday, we'll make it a cake. So we'll just, like, we'll throw a fuck ton of chocolate at it, a shit ton of cherry, and uh, uh, Is see that what imperial or metric in terms of those measurements that you I'm from Canada, so it's metric, <laughs> unless, like, I'm measuring anything under, like, you know, like, it's all right. Don't, I, don't, not, you don't have to indulge that yeah, as a serious question. I, I measure my height in feet. I measure my weight in pounds. But as soon as I'm going distances, it's kilometers and feet and centimeters. It's, I don't know. The, it's interesting being at a bowls club. I'm, I'm all about meters and kilometers until I'm measuring the distance between bowls and the kitty, where it's just a couple of inches. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, it's the same thing with me and brewing. It's just like it's Fahrenheit, Celsius, and oh, my God, I just... Anyway, I'm pretty good at conversions, but not on the fly and when I'm drunk. Um, well, thank God that's yeah. not the case. Anyway, Tell uh, us how we get those cherry sort of flavors in there, where they get into the process. Well, the cherry flavors themselves, because of the uh, time concentration for the beer, we use an extract. But it's a uh, natural extract that we had to source like, to make sure that it was like the best we could to get the sort of flavor profile we had wanted. Because we wanted it on the nose. We wanted it slight on the flavor, but we wanted it present throughout the whole beer, but not to the point where it was like a sickly, sweet, cherry, sort of like synthetic thing. So we did a lot of shopping for that. Uh, we found a good supplier for it. Uh, we do use extracts every once in a while at Deeds, just because uh, food waste becomes an issue when you're dealing with certain adjuncts. It's like there's no point in blowing the price out of a beer to like, you know, like $1,200 for something when you could spend $300 because that just gets passed on to the consumer. And also it is just food waste. Some flavors are a little bit more slight and just don't translate too well into beers. So you have to sort of go for the extract version of it. Uh, also using an organic material sometimes when it's not an extract will introduce some sort of, um, well, it could potentially be a contaminant essentially. So it's a safer option when you're under time constraints to go for the extract. As far as the coke is concerned, um, no expense was spared for that. <laughs> we went for the most expensive cocoa we could find, and we used more than we've ever used before. So we really wanted to make sure it was a chocolate cake. And what and sort of form does the cocoa arrive in? Is it powder or is it... Yeah, it's all in powder, nitrogen packs, uh, Dutch cocoa, just so that you get the amount of roast you're looking for. It would help balance out the... Um, uh, amount of sweetness that you're going to get from our pastry stouts. So we have a typical pastry stout recipe that we sometimes do adapt for what we're trying to aim for. It's usually the base that we'll do. And uh, depending on how you like this beer, you'll be happy to hear that the base of this beer, we're actually throwing 20 barrels up on the rack so that we can uh, 
do a little bit more of the uh, BBA journey, but with this pastry stout. Hell yeah. So last year after the reception of our uh, peanut butter BBA, we're like, well, let's do it again, but let's be flexible with it. So let's flavor it on the other end instead of flavoring it before we went in like we did with the pea, like the peanut butter bourbon barley. Is there a reason why you made that decision? Like, Oh, I like that fun. So I don't want to give you guys the same thing. If you notice what's been happening at Deeds the last six months, we never released the same beer over and over again. You've, I think you've had like two hazy pails and that's the only thing repeated. So, And one of them was bright pink because I threw dragon fruit powder in it. So like, yeah, I'm not going to do the same thing twice. I want to make sure that the things are varied. It's not going to be a bunch of like, you know, hazy and hazy and then a chip and then a dipper and then a bibber, you know. And I, even from our, from our breakfast together a few months ago, we sort of started to see the emergence of new styles by mm. deed standards, I think. Yeah. yeah, we're trying to do just a bunch of different things. Uh, we just brought out Red Flag, which is the first ever red that we've done. Yes, you can turn into the oh, microphone. No, you, just to, no we, uh, we definitely did the uh, we did, uh, red IPA. We did, uh, whatchamacallit? We had the red IPA and we it had an ESP, the, uh, I think, as well. David Bowie-themed one. Yeah. Anyway. While these two chat amongst each other, I mean, I guess we're going to have the last of the audience questions in a few moments' time, but you've, you've almost sort of led me to exactly where I wanted to be, which is, you know, where does the future lie for Deeds? What excites you guys about, you know, what you're looking forward to? Like, literally, what's going to be released in coming months? But longer term, what's going into barrels now that we're going to be sitting around and talking about in five years' time? OK, well, my thing is I love high alcohol, I love sugar... And uh, that's why I started working at Deeds. <laughs> like the one you thing you're a friend think, of the cool room for know, obvious right. reasons. Like my whole thing is just like I love alcohol and like lots of sugar. So and like I love pushing boundaries. I hate doing the same thing over and over again. Even like just changing hops for me just gets a little bit boring. Um, so for me, I like to just do new things. And also at Deeds, I've been doing a thing where. I, we have a lot of very experienced brewers, like more experienced than a lot of other breweries have access to. So it's not necessarily just me or uh, my lead brewer coming up with recipes. We hand things out if they have a if they have a clear vision and they have a lot of experience making that sort of a beer. I let them have a go with it, and they've had like we've had great success with uh, a lot of the feedback we've been having with some of those beers that we've sent off to those brewers. And so it's it's going to be a lot more varied in the future, but. Uh, yeah, if, uh, you know, price constraints right now is one of those things. We're trying to make sure that we're not passing all of our costs off to the consumers. So, you know, when um, uh, hopefully when this economic thing blows over, I'm going to be doing a lot more 10% silly, silly, silly things. That sounds excellent and exciting. I can see, I can see the devil's horns going up in the crowd. Kumar, for you, before we throw to the audience questions, and I can see there's a couple out there already, what's exciting you about the future of Deeds? Um, in all honesty, so uh, I, I touched on it before, but I can't remember if we were on mic at the time, but um, we've just released uh, our first two spirits under Future Proof Distilling. Um, so we've got Black Flank Whiskey and Greater Glider Gin. Uh, we're matched up with, uh, with Wires, who look after endangered Australian animals. So a dollar from every bottle sold goes to Wires. We'll also be doing some cool activations and stuff with them. Um, but it's, it's a potteroo so- in every bottle, I believe, is the. <laughs> it's okay. I'll, I'll edit that out as well. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> oh god! I just had a vision of like Pat listening back to the episode and be like, <laughs> "That wasn't what Wait, you were told." Uh, <laughs> does Pat listen to these? That's horrifying. Oh my god! Uh, uh, probably not. Okay. Um, so, uh, uh, anyway, um, yeah, no. So like, very. It's um, so I've been. 
craft beer for the past six years. We've had we've imported some spirits and like we've got jumping goat, we, but jumping goat's very much a party spirit, so I don't have to like. People try it and people understand the, the space it occupies. So I've never heard of Jumping Goat before. Educate me uh, about Jumping Goat um, and or, you know, is this the kind of thing that Leanne at Pinot Beer and Wine is going to be stocking instead of Fireball? Uh, so Jumping Goat is a New Zealand coffee vodka and a coffee whiskey. Um, it's basically, essentially for, for me as a salesperson... Uh, I'll target like Cafe Patron, which now doesn't exist, so it's much easier for me to target that. Um, but yeah, like that kind of a vibe. So like hips of caffeine, it's it's good vibes, but also no one's like scrutinising. It's a great spirit, but no one's scrutinising it from a like vodka or a whiskey perspective because it's coffee vodka and coffee whiskey. Whereas now we've got a whiskey, um, and my entire life as a as a craft sales rep, I'm like someday I'll learn to. To appreciate whiskey and, you know, I'll buy a couple of bottles, I'll start being able to pick up the, like, subtleties and stuff. That hasn't happened yet, um, so I'm, I'm running around with these uh, bottles of whiskey and, vod- and uh, gin, sorry, and uh, people who know a hell of a lot more about them than I do are telling me that they're really good, which is awesome! Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, they are. I was so against giving any of my tanks to uh, the still project. I was like fighting it tooth and nail, being like, I don't want this to happen. I don't, I don't want to have like the space. Summer's gonna happen, then I won't be able to make beer. And then I tried the whiskey, and I'm like, okay, well, actually, you know what? We're making something cool here, so I can do it, but not during the summer. I still need to make beer then. So now we're gonna have a bit of time for audience questions. I can see there's a couple here already. But particularly if you haven't already asked an audience question and you're not from the table of questions, as it is famously known here at the Bowls Club, uh, or the question of tables, which confuse the whole lot of people, including myself. If you're, uh, if you're wanting to ask a question, let's come and get you to line up here and we will give you the microphone so you can ask it directly in and thereby saving me a lot of time. No, I'm Corey, I'm pointing at you, I think, first. A lot of time in the editing because there is nothing that sucks up my Monday afternoons like editing five-second breaks out of podcasts. Um, so, so you mentioned here... Uh, Corey's uh, FM radio voice coming to you live. Hi, and welcome. Um, so you mentioned you're very keen on playing above 10%. Oh, personally, I yeah. I, I love high ABV beers. Like uh, so 8% and higher is con- my Conduct a special reserve is only a, a, a woeful 9.5. Um, yeah. However... Are we going to see imperial double conductors? Oh, it's a magnificent beer already. You know, it, it's yeah, a fantastic beer. If it don't fix it, it might but... not, No, it might not be in the same name. We can do something definitely in the same thing, because... Uh, that was uh, the, the Mikey special sp- reserve. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the whole conductor's special reserve thing is uh, something. It, it's a story attached to Justin and his family, his parents, and whatnot. So, like, we'll probably carry on with the beer itself or making it along the same vein, just as good. Maybe try to improve if that's possible. Because I love that beer; it's great. Yeah, but like, if, if it ain't broke, but yeah, yeah exactly, maybe, right? maybe same but different. Exactly. I mean, and once again, it's playing with barrels, so it's going to be different next year anyway. But, yeah, the capacity is still there to release that beer. We'll do it at the right time, but uh, it might be a different framework. So just look out for the keywords. <laughs> and next question is from Naomi. Um, I was just going to ask, where can you get the whiskey from? 
So, um, I like to think that at most of the places, I like to think that it's at most of the places that you can find your very good beers from. Um, but also, we did. I think we did contemplate. I like to think that we contemplated uh, calling it like Deeds Distilling. But we wanted to make it very clear that you know we've got the stills, we've got a head distiller. We're very very serious about it. It's not a hobby spirit. It's something that's going to be quite long term. And I think historically there's been um, maybe a few breweries who have just done like a one or two off spirits here and there um, that maybe haven't lived up to a price point. Um, as a result, we're very much working on it. Basically, it's really up to me just getting it into people who run bottle shops' mouths, essentially, and making sure that they try it and that I can fit it in there. Um, so can we message you directly to get some as well? Uh, I'm sure yeah, we should sure, come to some point. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah. Dave said he was going to run it through the cool room, actually. The cool cases room and cases of it, I yeah. believe, was it? Yeah. Now, it's a, a single malt whiskey yeah. that uh, all the brewers, including myself, are making uh, for the wash-wise. Uh, I then, you know, we ferment it using a Saison yeast, which makes it go super, super quick. Whenever they have time, because we share a boiler... They'll distill it. It'll usually be a day that we're boiling, like uh, barreling or something like that. They'll, uh, you know, distill it, and then they'll rack it into barrels that same day. It's a blend between one red wine barrel and one um, bourbon barrel-aged barrel. However, it's uh, barrels that we use for our stouts. So yeah. these stouts here, we send them off to get recuperated into 100s to increase the aging process so they get much more wood character and whatnot before they get sent back to us, and that's what they actually send our wash into before it's aged. So every uh, barrel of whiskey that you're trying is actually something that was formerly either Frey series or something else. Wow, that's, that's, that's amazing. That's, so that's, that's really cool. That's really uh, that's uh, something I didn't I know and wish that I had. No, it's something <laughs> we're doing now, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I talked to Dave about it. I'm like, that's just that's how, that's yeah. Cool. Very, very cool. I think that's an excellent time to put a little bow on our conversation out here at the Flemkin Bowls Club. <laughs> Guys, it's awesome to have you here on the birthday of Deeds, which is a really important day in the brewery. You guys uh, celebrate the birthday so much more than other breweries do. And we're about an hour away from the Matildas playing for third and fourth in the World Cup. Everyone who's been listening to the podcast on the way has probably heard little updates along the way. So it's an important day for Australia as well. But, guys, a big round of applause here in the crowd. Thank you, Kumar. Thank you, Kurt. It's excellent to have you on board one more time. Uh, and can I just say a big thanks not only to Dave for coordinating this um, with all the effort that he has put in to make it happen, um, but also to all of you for coming out here. Um, really, really appreciate it. It was really nice to see a lot of familiar faces, a couple of unfamiliar faces. Um, thanks very much for everyone for coming out and listening to us uh, talk shit about the beers. Hey.